Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth, where we explore how to cultivate real wealth, which is so much more than money. It's the sum quality of our values, relationships, health, sense of purpose, time, charitable giving, legacy, and more. Your path to real wealth begins now. Well, welcome to the show this week. I'm Benjamin Cummings from Blue Barn Wealth, and I'm here with Jeff Brimhall, my uh, co-host. So, Jeff, how are you doing today? Fantastic, Benjamin. Thank you. We're excited for uh, the episode today. We're joined by Richard Ellis, who's the director of My529, and he's going to teach us all things 529 plans, and we're very happy to have him. He's an expert, and we look forward to all that uh, all that he's about to teach us. So, Richard, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. And first, thank you, Jeff and Benjamin, for inviting me to be on today. It's fun to be a part of it. No, yeah, we talked to your team. We said, we'd love to have somebody from my 529 on. And they said, well, Richard's the best guy to have on your program. He'd do exceptionally well. So we're happy to have you here. That's because I can make up answers on the fly better than <laughs> they can. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, why don't you share with us a little bit about how you became the executive director of my 529? Yeah, I've been the executive director down here for just over three years kind of a circuitous route to get here. I've spent most of my career working in government finance at state and local level. And in 1996, I went to work at the state of Utah as the chief deputy state treasurer. And that's the same year that at then the Utah Educational Savings Plan, our formal legal name was created. And we do business as my 529 now. But when I was chief deputy state treasurer, I remember opening the accounts with Vanguard, which we use as one of our primary investment vehicles. And so I was chief deputy state treasurer. I spent a little time in the governor's office as budget director with governors Walker and Huntsman and found my way back to the treasurer's office and actually was elected as state treasurer for two terms. And then my predecessor, Lynn Ward, who I had met working in the governor's office, she decided to move on and try some different things. And I was appointed as the executive director. So it's kind of fun to come full circle to when I opened those accounts. And we used to think that, that, you know, if UASP ever got to be more than three, $400 million, it would be a rip roaring success. And, <laughs> and now we're down here and we're a little bit bigger than that. How big are you? I think we closed the day yesterday at about 18.8, 18.9 billion dollars. Oh, wow. 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 Well, maybe to help out, this has been fun to hear about your journey. For those that may be unfamiliar, what is uh, what is My 529? You know, My 529, we're an agency created by the state. The IRS code that created 529 plans says that they need to be sponsored by a state or a state agency. And then there's an exception for a university. So there's a couple of university consortiums that have plans. But most are state agencies. Many are housed in the treasurer's office. In our case, we're part of the Utah System of Higher Education. So we're housed here with the Utah Board of Higher Ed and the Office of the Commissioner of Higher Education. So we are a government entity. We're not a private group. We're created in statute to, to administer a nonprofit trust as a self-supporting agency. So it's kind of a unique place to be in the government sector. And some states have two, and Utah only has one, right? 529? Yeah. Yeah. You know, again, states sponsor them. So states like, I think Nevada has five or six different plans. Arizona has several. In Utah, you know, and sometimes those are advisor sold plans. Some plans are direct sold. We're a direct sold. So we've looked at in the past of going with an advisor sold plan, but decided the direct sold is the route we want to go. And we haven't had interest in sponsoring other plans so far. 
Right. Well, maybe let's start simple. And for our listeners, what is a 529 plan? A 529 plan is really a tax advantage way of saving for education expenses. We always used to talk in terms of college education, but it's been broadened over the years. And so there's a a deferral from federal and state income tax by investing in a 529 plan. Uh, 30 states or so have some type of a state deduction or tax credit that gives you an advantage to do that. So they're really, they're a government entity wherever you go with this, other than there's the private college plan, which is a consortium of private universities that runs a prepaid tuition program. Wonderful. So it's a tax advantage way to save for education and often sponsored by states that allows you to use it for different types of education, which we'll talk about later, which different types it sounds like. So thank you. Great, great definition. Maybe uh, talk to us about why people should consider using a 529 plan. You mentioned the tax benefits that multiple states have those. That's obviously one of the reasons. What are some other reasons why people would want to use a 529 plan? And maybe after that, talk about specifically Utah's tax benefit if you're a resident of Utah. Okay. You know, I think one of the great advantages of having these is an aspirational goal for the beneficiary. And, you know, I'm old now, so I'm saving for my grandkids. And so for Christmas, I give them a sheet of paper this year wrapped around a Hershey chocolate bar. Um, But it said, this is how much money I have an account for you to further your education after you finish high school. And so for them, they know I care about them enough to do this. And I'm hoping that's aspirational at least when they get old enough to really think about it in those terms. So I think that's an important reason for doing it. Obviously, the tax benefits. 529 plans are relatively easy to use. It's a dedicated place to be saving. It's protected. It's not like saving in a savings account. So many people say, well, yeah, I'm saving for college, but they're just doing it in a savings account. Well, that gets swept into the car repair and uh, the roof repair, and, and the money's not there. But when you have a 529 plan, that is set aside specific for education. And I think that protection around it is really an important reason to establish an account. Sorry. Yeah. I'm, I was just curious, Richard, what usually motivates someone to start a 529 account? You know, that's really a great question that some finance behavioral guy really ought to answer. But I think for most people, they are people that are you know, they're education oriented in what they want to have happen with their family. You know, you want your kids to succeed. You want them to have that opportunity and to begin saving young and having the tax advantages associated with that, uh, you know, I think is a motivation to do it. And even if you haven't, you know, got a college degree yourself, but you're hoping for more for that next generation, I think that's really the motivator that I want to do this and I want to start setting that money aside now. Makes sense. And you were going to mention the specific Utah state tax benefits? Yeah. So in, in Utah, we're a little unique. There's a handful of states that do a tax credit. And I would argue the tax credit's more beneficial than a tax deduction. So we offer a tax credit, which is equal to our state income tax rate of 4.85%. The most people have an effective tax rate lower than that, but you get a 4.85% credit on the contribution that you make, and it's a per beneficiary credit. So I think that's another unique thing as opposed to an aggregated amount. Each beneficiary, you're allowed to do that. Now, there are some limitations on that. I'm trying to think the numbers off the top of my head. It's about $2,000 that you can do on a... Um, individual basis, 4,000 for a joint, if I remember correctly. So it can be up to $200 that you could have in a credit if you maxed out your contribution. Most people don't get there, but some people do. That's per beneficiary, right? So if you have multiple right. kids, multiply that. Yeah. So I, I've got 16 accounts. I contribute to all of them. 
I aggregate that all together and it adds up to $30 for tax credit, but it's more than that. But it's really a great advantage. And I think a reason to do it because that's a direct dollar for dollar offset to whatever your tax liability is. Yeah, that's great. And what types of education savings can the 529 be used for? You know, I think that's one of the great myths that, that people think, oh, if I have the Utah plan, I can only attend a Utah school. 529 plans can be used at any institution that is qualified to participate in the federal financial aid programs. And those don't just have to be U.S. They could be a Canadian program. There's some European programs qualified to use that. So any institution like that can receive it. So it can be a four-year university. It can be a community college. Our applied technology colleges here in the state are a great place uh, for people to use that. They're low cost and you get great skills to be able to do it. It's been expanded that you can use it even for apprenticeships now. So there's lots of options to do that. And it's not just state of Utah. It's anywhere across the country. And did you mention private schools as well now? You can use yes, private, private schools? schools as well. Absolutely. Oh, now, what, what constitutes a qualified education expense then? Yeah, that that's uh, the interesting part. Everything we do is really structured again by the uh, Internal Revenue Code, Section 529, where they define qualified education expenses. And, you know, so it's tuition and fees, books, supplies. They've now made computers permanent. So you can buy computers, you can pay for internet as long as it's substantially being used for college events, for room and board with some limitations. You have to be at least a half-time student and up to certain uh, amounts set by the institution. Um, that, that definition has been expanded the last few years by Congress. So now it can be used to pay student loans up to $10,000 um, lifetime amount for the beneficiary, but also for a sibling of the beneficiary. It was expanded several years ago to include K through 12 tuition only at public, private, and religious schools, which is somewhat of a unique advantage. And then recently they added registered apprenticeships as another qualified expense. So those all fit within the definition of a qualified education expense. That, that's that's great. That's very helpful. Thank you. So like, let's say somebody's contributing to a 529 account. They've been saving over a number of years, but then what happens if the child either ends up not going to college or maybe they don't end up using all the funds that are in the account? You know, that's always a concern. And a lot of people, I think, hesitate to make the investment because they worry about that. I don't know that my kid will go to college or what they'll end up doing. There's a lot of flexibility with a 529 account on how it can, what those excess proceeds can be used for. So assume your student finishes with $10,000. You can keep that account open. You can continue to contribute for it even. And then when that student gets married a few years later, has grandchildren, you can transfer that account to a grandchild. Uh, you could transfer that to a sibling of that beneficiary if they're still in school, a younger sibling, and help meet those expenses or to another family member. And the family member definition is very under the code. And so that could be a niece, a nephew, um, can flow a lot of different ways. And so I think there are a lot of ways to do it. I mean, worst case is you withdraw it. You have to pay income tax on the earnings portion only, not what you contributed, but just the earnings. And then there's a 10% penalty. So yeah, you have to pay a little bit there, but there's always ways you can still access that money. But I, to me, it's always better leave it in there and move it on to another generation, a grandchild or something, because you've already made that contribution and commitment. Why not keep figuring out how you can impact somebody's life. And that tax and penalty is only on 
the growth, right? Not on what you've already just, contributed. That's right. Just on the growth, never on the contribution. They're after tax contributions like a Roth IRA. So um, you never have to pay tax on the principal the, that you've contributed only on the growth of that investment. Now, what if a child gets a scholarship and is there an option that you know, if that helps cover some of their education expense? Yeah. You know, every parent thinks their kid's going to get a scholarship when they go to college <laughs> and that full ride football or basketball. And it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally it does. But in the case, there are some exceptions. So if a, a child does get a scholarship, you can withdraw money up to the amount of the scholarship on an annual basis. You do have to pay income tax on the earnings portion, that growth, but there's no penalty associated with that. But quite often, scholarships aren't paying for all the expenses. Sometimes they're half scholarships, or it may not pay for room and board. It may be tuition only. You know, you got books. You have other expenses, so you can always use it for those other expenses, too. Or they might go to graduate school, right, or something? Or on to graduate school, absolutely, if they uh, keep it in there. I, You know, I know several people whose children got nice scholarships, and that's all they've done is held on to it for graduate school. It's a good approach. Good approach. So uh, the, the new Secure 2.0 Act uh, included that was just signed into law recently included some information about changes to 529 plans. Do you mind speaking about those changes? Yeah, you know, it's one of the things the industry has kind of pushed for for several years. We finally got it to happen this year, although it wasn't exactly the way we wanted it. But I think this also is another incentive. What do I do with any excess funds I have after paying for college? So in Secure 2.0, it is allowing them to roll that over into a Roth IRA that belongs to the beneficiary. So obviously it's not going to help you as the parent, the account owner, but it can help begin that child saving for college by rolling it into the Roth IRA. Now there's limitations on that it can be no more than $35,000 in total. The count has to have been open for at least 15 years and it has to be contributions that were before the last five years. So there are limitations there. And if they're already making contributions, you have to reduce that, you know, $6,500. If somebody put 500 in, you can only do 6,000 on the rollover. So there's some limitations, but I think it opens up a whole new door of what you do with it. If you have excess funds at the end of it. Well, I think it, it makes it a little easier or less stressful about trying to calculate to the dollar, how much do I need in there? Right. Because you've got an alternative on the back end. You know, and the fact of the matter is most of us are never going to save enough money to pay for it all. So there won't be a balance, but you know, if you're fortunate enough that you end up with a balance, then good for you. And I think that's a great alternative to be able to roll it that way. Yeah. Great idea. You mentioned, um, changing beneficiaries. And so just wanted to touch on that a little more to make sure people understand it, but can you change the beneficiary? I think you said yes. And you mentioned various other beneficiaries it could be, and how often can you change it if so? Yeah, I think that's one of the nice things that when you establish the account, you have to name a beneficiary. You, you could create an account before you have a child. You just name yourself as the beneficiary. And when the child's born, you can now change the beneficiary to the child. And then as we discussed earlier, you can change that to a sibling, to a grandchild, and you can do that as often as you need, as long as you keep it within that defined definition of a member, a family member, which again is a pretty broad definition. So I think that provides an awful lot of flexibility with these accounts. Yeah, I think so too. And and so if you can change the beneficiary, some people who have multiple kids might think, well, I just need one or two accounts. I mean, I have five kids myself. 
And so someone with five kids may say, I only need one or two accounts. I'll put money in. If the per first two kids don't use it all, then I'll, you know, change the beneficiary to the younger kids. Do you recommend that approach or do you recommend having one account for each of your kids? You know, my recommendation is to have one account for each kid. Again, it comes back to the, that aspirational goal that they see you're vested in them, you're saving for them. They can see something that's tangible for them. Um, if it's just, you know, one or two accounts and it's just going to roll down through the kids, they don't know what they're going to have at the end of it. And whether you get upset with them, maybe you decide you don't <laughs> want to be even have it. You, you just don't know where you end up at the end of the day. But I think it's a better approach to have individual accounts for those kids so they can see what's there for them. And I think over time, it's easier for you to manage and have some equity at the end of the day. Yeah, I agree with you. I have five kids. I have one for each of my children. And I think it's better to have one for each child instead of kind of a generic account. And maybe the first kid uses it all. and There's nothing left for yep. anybody yep. else or something. Maybe just something to add to that too. I'm impressed with my, my 529's interface that it makes it real easy to manage multiple accounts. So it's not really cumbersome to have multiple accounts that way. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Like I said, I've got 16 accounts. I'm going to be adding my 17th account here in a few months. And Congratulations. Um, it's all doable. Does that mean 17 grandkids? Is that what that means? No, that means 16 grandkids and one son still. Okay. Who has who graduated, but I kept the account open, never knowing what I may want to do with it. Maybe it'll change the law and I can roll it into my Roth IRA at some time in the future. How many total accounts do you hope to have? Well, I told my kids they had a quota to give me 24 grandchildren and I'm not going to make it. But I suspect by the end of the day, I could have 19 or 20 accounts before it's all said and done. All right. All right. Well, that's good. 24 grandkids would be a lot, but 19 is really good as well, right? Yeah, that's still way too many to contribute to. <laughs> um, so what programs are available for employers? I noticed on your website, you guys have some employers, some links for employers. What uh, programs are available for employers to help their employees save for their kids' college education? You know, as an industry, we find employers kind of the holy grail we'd like to get out there and crack somehow. You know, 401ks, everybody seems to know what a 401k is. You say a 529 and people look at you like, what was that? So we're always trying to educate and increase awareness of 529 plans. But we would love to see that 529 becomes as, as ubiquitous as a 401k and that employers offer it as a benefit right alongside there are other benefits, health insurance and retirement and all of those kinds of things. And it really can be a no-cost benefit to an employer. So we're working on some tools to make that easier for employers to do. Now, the right now, there's not necessarily an advantage because if an employer were to contribute to an employee's 529 plan, it's a taxable benefit to the employee. So that's somewhat discouraging. But of course, I would rather... Uh, my employer give me $500 for a 529 plan and pay the taxes on it, then you give me nothing. But that's just kind of my take on the world. You know, as an industry, we're always pushing at a federal level to see if there's something we could do so that there would be incentive for employers to contribute to this. So, so right now, it's just trying to say, offer this as a cost-free benefit to you as an employer to provide information to your employees. We'll come out, we'll do brown bag lunches, we'll do benefit fairs, we'll do whatever you'd like to come out and educate your employees and help them establish accounts and work on a payroll process that they can just have that monthly contribution or biweekly contribution go into their 529 account. We really think that's important in helping people to begin to save and really maximize the opportunity and benefit of a 529 plan. 
So the main benefit currently with an employer would be, you know, making it easy for their employees to do it through payroll deduction of some sort. And uh, it doesn't save the employee anything on FICA taxes or anything like that. Right. It would just be allowing them to contribute right out of their paycheck instead of needing to receive the money and then think about contributing in another way. So it's a way to make it easy for people to contribute. Yeah, that's what our goal and objective is. And hopefully we can crack that nut someday. Yeah, make it easy. Make it easy for individuals to contribute. That's what we want to do. That's good. Hey, Richard, could you speak a little bit to the how a 529 plan compares to other options for saving for education? You know, the Coverdell is a, an alternative as an example, or some people may see an, an alternative of just saving in a Roth IRA, for example, or maybe a custodial account. Could you kind of speak to where a 529 compares to some of these and why a 529 plan might be a better option? You guys will have to correct me where I'm wrong here because you're getting me a little bit out of my wheelhouse, but I'll take a stab at it. You know, Coverdells are an option. They're a little more limited. You can only contribute. I didn't look to see if 2023 changed, but $2,000 into a Coverdell on an annual basis. You can't contribute after the beneficiary becomes 18, where in a 529, you can continue those contributions. You have to pull it out by the time they're age 30. I think 529 plans, you know, you can contribute more, no income limitations, more tax advantage, perhaps with the state tax advantage that's there. Coverdell may have better, more investment options that are available. But so there's trade offs there. But, you know, I think there are limitations on Coverdell that 529s look like a superior approach. You talk about Roth IRA, you know, it becomes a bit more of a, a toss up because they're very similar. They're both after tax contributions. Of course, with a 529, you can get a state tax credit here in Utah or deduction in many other states, but not all states. There are income limitations on contributing to a Roth IRA. There are no lim income limitations to 529 plans. Uh, I think in 2023, the Roth IRA goes up to $6,500 a year. Uh, you know, there's no effective limit on a contribution to a 529 other than the gifting limit of $17,000 in 2023. 529 plans actually have the ability, we'll call it super funding an account, but you can do five-year averaging, which is unique to 529 plans. So you could make, what, 185, or get my math right, an $85,000 deduction per person. As a couple, you could do $170,000 and average that over five years as a way, as part of an estate planning benefit that you don't get with a Roth IRA. Roth IRA, again, they'll have a, a little more broad investment option choice than you get with a 529 plan. You can pull the Roth you know, principal out without ever paying any tax and more flexible in how you use that as opposed to a 529 because you're limited to just using it for education expenses. So they're pretty close, but I still think 529s are went out in my mind. Of course they would. I'm a director of a plan. Custodial plans and UGMA UGMA account. Uh, again, you lose control when they, they reach um, age of majority, whether it's 18, depending upon your state, 18 to 25. Uh, now it becomes that beneficiary's account and they control what happens. So if they decide not to go to college and rather spend two years touring Europe on a bike, that's what they're going to do and spend the money and the assets that you had given them. And so you lose control over that, you know, some other limitations within the UGMA, but that I think make 529 better. So, you know, lots of options out there and you read lots of things of which is better. I really like the 529 plan because again, I think it's there for a student. It's aspirational. They know it's there for their education and betterment. That's yeah. That was a great rundown. Thank you. Maybe it just as a follow up, you're talking about control. I think one of the unique things about a 529 is that for wealthier individuals, 
It is a way to remove assets from your gross estate for estate tax purposes, but still maintain that control. Do you, do you want to speak to that for a little bit? Yeah, you know, that's very unique with 529 plans because it's considered a completed gift when you put it into the plan. Now, were you to pass away, if you had done the five-year averaging, um, you have to, whatever time's left on that, that would flow back to the estate. But generally, it's considered a completed a gift, so you get that advantage but you maintain control as the account owner. And so it never does transfer to the beneficiary unless you change the beneficiary or someone else to be the owner of the account. So that's a unique structure. And, and I, I think we like having that control as an account owner because what if you do have that, that screw up grandkid that you really don't want to support going to college, that they wouldn't better society, that you don't have to give them any money and to the one that you think is a superstar that fails later in life. So control is really an important issue, especially to those, like you say, have more assets and wealth that it's a way for them to transfer some of that and not run into problems. That's great. That's great. So my 529, it seems to be consistently ranked as one of the top 529 plans in the country. You know, you often hear even individuals and advisors in other states talk about how great Utah's 529 plan is. Uh, do you mind speaking a little bit to what makes my 529 competitive among other 529 plan options? Well, that, that's really a, a great question. I get asked that all the time. And I really think the decision to invest in Vanguard funds back in 1998, I think, or 97, we made the first investments. Vanguard being a very low cost, passive investment option, allowed my 529 to have low expenses. And so you go back to the early history of these plans when they were small and didn't have a lot of scale. It was very common to see fees that were 80, 90, 100 basis points, you know, eight tenths of a percent to a full percent. My 529 was about half a percent or less and was able to ratchet that down. So I think over time, we, we got in early with the low fees. We're not the lowest fee plan out there now, but we're one of the lowest fee plans. Our investment options appeal to a lot of people. Vanguard is a well-known name. We've constructed lots of options to be able to cover everyone along the risk continuum to the very conservative, to the more more aggressive ones. So they have options to choose from that make sense. We brought in dimensional fund advisors. They kind of have their own following of of advisors that like their funds, you know, they're not pat, they're not a true index fund. They're not truly active managed. They're more of a quant fund somewhere in between, and they're relatively low cost for getting a, a little different twist on it all. So I think those have been great pieces, but I think, you know, one of the things that Morningstar always gives us accolades for also is really our governance structure. It's the oversight that, that we're insulated from political influences, even though we're a government agency. We don't go to the, the legislature to get appropriations for our budget. We don't support state government. We're a self-supporting agency, and we have our own board that provides us oversight and act as fiduciaries to the trust. And I think that's another thing that, you know, we're not in the whims of a treasurer's office that could blow to and fro with the winds. We don't get that political influence. So that governance structure also is really important. That's good. Good point. Thank you. I, I, this is Jeff coming in here. And I think I agree with you so much. Like for us, 529 plans are the single best way to save for education, all the different types of education expenses you mentioned. I have my oldest daughter's a junior at, at Brigham Young University right now. And we're using the 529 plan to help fund her room and board. And, uh, and it's very helpful and it's been great to save throughout her life, as you said, and create a source of funds to use. So thank you. And I think my 529 is, I feel so 
grateful that I live in Utah and get to use the plan and get the tax credit. But even if I lived outside in another state like Texas or someplace else that didn't have uh, state taxes, I would still use it because it's such a great plan. How does somebody open an account at My529? We've tried to make it as simple as we can. So you can go to our website, my529.org, and there's a process there. You can click on the link. We'll take you in to start to open an account. You know, you need to have your social security number. You need to have a physical address in the United States. You need to be over 18 and you need to have the beneficiary social security number. And you can open an account in less than 10 minutes. You'll have to make a decision on an investment option, which always seems to be the biggest hang up. If you don't want to do it online, you can print a form and fill the form out, and mail it to us or fax it to us and open the account that way. So we want to make that process as easy as possible. And we think it's a pretty simple process. We don't have any minimum contribution to open the account. A lot of accounts get opened and then we get money within 10, 20, 30 days. Sometimes it's even longer than that. We have no minimum contribution amount on a monthly basis. Could be $1, $10, $1,000, whatever works for you. You can do recurring contributions. You can do them one time, whatever works. And so we've tried to make that process really simple. Wonderful. And if, if it's not simple enough and somebody needs help, uh, can they their advisor, financial advisor, help them open an account? You know, that's that's a good question. It's a yes and a no question. We love financial advisors like your firm that are fee only that are out there helping and providing what they need. You can assist them in that process. Now that that client always is going to have to sign the document that says, I've opened this account. We are working with a lot of back service um, providers in the financial advisory world to be able to provide feeds. We have a site out there, financial advisors, where they can get a limited power of attorney authorization and, and help to upload those accounts, open them on behalf of their clients. And we work with advisors to give them some different levels of control over that. And so you can always turn to your advisor and we can figure out a way to help get that account open. Thank you. And you've been so generous with your time. I think we just have two more questions for you, but a couple of really important questions. And the first one is we think about real wealth and how we define it. Education is one of those key components of creating real wealth in somebody's life. And so from your perspective, how does education contribute to uh, creating real wealth? You know, I, that that's a great question. When I think of education, I think that one of the values is you come out with that degree and you have a feeling of self-worth, which I think is important. That education also opens lots of doors of opportunity for you going forward. So that those opportunities are what are going to create, in my mind, wealth for you going forward in you know, your lifestyle, the things that are important to you. You can work 80 hours a week if you want to, or you can work 40 hours a week. You find that work-life balance that works for you. Education, I think, is key to getting you down that pathway. Um, you know, we've all seen the studies that some of the bachelor's degree earns X times more than someone with just a high school degree and, you know, a graduate degree will get you another increment of that. And so I think education is a key. And I don't think we need to think of education always in terms of a four year degree, but even that trade school. I mean, how important it is that you can go get a job as a machinist, a plumber, a, a welder and still make 60, 80, $100,000 a year. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great opportunity. And it just sets you up for a better lifestyle and being able to do the things that are important to you throughout your life. Thank you. I agree with that. Yeah, Richard, this has been fantastic. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I've really enjoyed all that you've shared today about uh, 529 plans and how we can be better, better suited for that. You know, we like to end our show by asking our guests the question about real wealth. So we'd like to ask you as well, what is real wealth to you? 
What is real wealth to me? That's a great question too. You know, I would consider myself a wealthy guy, not because I have tons of assets. I have more than enough and have done quite well in my life, but I have been able to do the things in my life I want to. I've had great opportunities to travel, to, to, you know, function at high levels of government, to interface with people at those high levels. Most importantly, I've had time to spend with my family to do the things that I think are most important in my life. And so, yep, I've been able to provide for my kids. I've got six boys. They've all gone through college. All of them got through college without debt till they went to graduate school. They were on their end then, then. So that medical student will be paying bills for many years to come, but that was his choice. But I think the, the, just having a good life, doing the things that I wanted to do, having great experiences uh, have really provided to me what I would call real wealth. Financially, I'm okay. Um, other aspects of my life are great. Love that. Love that. Again, Richard, thank you for joining us today. We certainly appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners uh, for joining us today. We appreciate you and uh, tune in next time for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Real Wealth from Blue Barn Wealth. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and any guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Blue Barn Wealth. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for personalized investment advice. Because everyone's situation is unique, always seek the advice of a qualified financial professional with any questions you may have.